Blog Talk Radio. And I Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by our sponsors, Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guest is Dr. Art Combs. Arthur Combs, MD, is a physician, executive, and serial entrepreneur. After more than 20 years in clinical practice, Art has spent the last 20 years bringing new medical technologies to the market. As an officer of five successful startup companies and a Fortune 500 senior executive, his focus has been on non-invasive technologies, although he has consulted across the life science spectrum from pharma to biotech, uh, molecular diagnostic, and medical devices. Art is currently the CMO of MC10, Inc., an entrepreneurial company <clears throat> positioned to revolutionize clinical trials and chronic disease management through wearable technology. Dr. Combs is holder of two honorary fellowships, investor of two U.S. patents, and author of numerous original scientific articles, abstracts, editorials, and book chapters. We are really excited to have him on the show today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Combs, and let's just jump right in and tell us about MC10. Okay, Katie, thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. MC10 is focused on what we call wearable technology. The basis of our technology is a rich patent portfolio that surrounds flexible, stretchable electronics, and it enables us to make a wearable sensor that is lightweight, easy to wear, can go anywhere on the body, and is multimodal. So we have the opportunity to put a sensor on subjects and have them wear it in their daily lives. And that way, we gather what we call real-world data. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that that has to be, like, incredibly beneficial, one, to see different endpoints of the disease and the symptoms, but also for clinical trials, I would imagine. Um, um it was recently announced that MC10 and the University of Vermont are teaming up to research gait impairment in Huntington's disease. So why did why HD? Well, let's kind of start uh, back where we were before. When when we put sensors on people, we measure many different things. We use accelerometry, gyroscopy, uh, EMG, ECG, and we get a pretty comprehensive picture of the person. But what's most interesting about it, aside from the fact that the data come from the home where you know real actual life takes place, but what's really exciting about it is that it produces data in four basic areas, all of which turn out to be important. 
We look at vital signs in autonomic nervous system function. We look at sleep metrics. We look at activity and actigraphy. And we look at posture and body position. All of those things sound kind of general, but when you look at a person with HD, there are very specific findings that are disease-specific. So to use the example you asked about, we're doing a large clinical trial with a pharmaceutical company, but they have asked that in addition to standard outputs, that we do some exploratory detailed work. One of those things is to characterize the gait disturbance of Huntington disease. So if I told you that we've done a lot of work in neurodegenerative diseases in general, you'd realize that Parkinson's disease has a gait disturbance and multiple sclerosis has a gait disturbance. But the important thing is not just that these disease states cause deviations from normal, but they have their own specific signature. And that's what's valuable because if we can characterize the Huntington gait disturbance, we can detect it much earlier, we can see the effect of treatments and we can distinguish the Huntington disturbance from other neurodegenerative diseases. Right. Well, and it's so interesting you say that because it makes me think of like so many people think of Huntington's and we say we're a movement disorder, right? And people say, oh, like Parkinson's, but their movements are completely different. Um, and most people don't understand that. So when you're saying like different types of gait impairment throughout different diseases, that's interesting because I wouldn't think that people's gait would be different. But well, it's sense. very interesting because if you look at all the four general areas that we measure, we look at vital signs and heart rate variability, for example, there are abnormalities mm -hmm. in the autonomic function and tone in each of these diseases. But once again, those abnormalities are disease specific and they become useful mm -hmm. for following both the course of the disease as well as uh, the effectiveness of treatment. Gait is a perfect example. You know, gait disturbance is pretty general. It just means, you know, you don't walk normally. But there's something very characteristic about the way in which patients with Huntington disease deviate from normal. We want to characterize that in a very specific way so that we can follow it, so that we understand the natural history of it, but most importantly, so that we can detect treatment effect as, you know, new treatments emerge. Sure, sure. So how are you guys doing this research? Well, we have um, several different avenues that we pursue. Um, the first is that our business is in uh, commercial clinical trials for large pharmaceutical companies. And in this case, we do have a pharmaceutical company um, sponsor, and they have endpoints for their drug trial. That is kind of set in stone. But to their credit, they went a step further and asked us to help them characterize in great specificity the gait disturbance for Huntington disease. And we're also doing some additional exploratory work in Korea. So pharmaceutical trials is one way we do our research. The second is I'm very happy to say that many universities have adopted our technology both in their laboratories and to gather real-world data uh, from subjects uh, in the home. And occasionally we ourselves sponsor a trial 
Um, sometimes it's something straightforward like usability. Uh, at other times, uh, such as our pivotal trial, it's to create clinical validation of our endpoints and, uh, at least at that time, FDA clearance. Yeah. Well, it's so it's so interesting because you know we talk to uh, pharmaceutical companies all the time, obviously that are that are looking at Huntington's and you know they're getting ready to construct their their clinical trials, and um, you know Genentech, Roche, and Teva, and, and Wave, and I mean we we talk to them all the time about clinical trials, and we always say the best day is a day at the clinic for someone with Huntington's, right? Um, the, the second we go to the clinic and they're around the experts and they get all this expert care and, and attention, they have one of their best days typically. So how do you get data uh, from, a, from a potential new therapy or treatment on a best day of a patient, right? So the thing that's great about these wearables is they're able to look, like you were saying, in the comfort of their own homes, and they're able to track stuff on a daily basis that will really tell the story um, of the effectiveness of the therapy or, or treatment. Is that is that correct? Well, absolutely. So let me just sort of comment on what, what you said. Um, I wouldn't wish anybody anything but, you know, all best days. But the truth of the matter is we're not here to measure the best day or how well a person can perform when they feel they're, uh, under pressure or have to put their best foot forward. What we're really interested in is what we call real-world data. What does it look like mm -hmm. for you to live with this disease on a day-to-day -day basis? How does it disturb mm -hmm. your sleep? How does it disturb how you walk around? How does it affect your vital signs or how much time you lay down? Um, we just want to look at real life with the disease, the ways in which the disease affects these aspects of life, and then hopefully to be able to see beneficial effects of new treatments. Sure. Yeah. So can you can you explain to us what is a BioStamp endpoint? Well, BioStamp is a trademark that we use to um, label all of our sensor patches. The sensor patch is like kind of like a thick band-aid. Uh, it has an amazing amount of electronics in it, and as I said. The, the DNA of our company comes from flexible, stretchable, and wearable electronics. But that's just the sensor. The endpoint system is an end-to-end -end system. The intention of it is to be able to design a clinical trial, at least from the wearable perspective, dedicate certain kinds of activities, and thus activate certain sensor modes, Prescribe a mobile experience, whether you prescribe activities or surveys or patient-reported outcomes, or just the instructions to remind people in the morning how to, how to put on uh, their patches. Then to be able to gather the data, analyze the data, and present the data in two formats. One, a raw data format for data scientists who really want the, um, the raw data unprocessed, and has 44 clinical biometrics in a nice dashboard uh, format that lets you know what a day in the life of your patient looks like. So the endpoint system is the brand name for our end-to-end -end clinical trials product, all mostly based on uh, the intellectual property in our wearable sensors. Wow. Okay. Great. And so 
as far as the, the Huntington's disease um, uh, trial is concerned, or uh, the work that's concerned with MC10, um, how can people participate? Well, or who um, can participate? Be, Actually, let's start with that. Well, the answer is people are participating. There are more than 20 yeah. sites uh, around the U.S. that are enrolling patients okay. into the study. And they're being recruited uh, by the pharmaceutical company for these 20 clinical sites. In addition to that, the University of Vermont, who is going to be looking at all of the GATE data from the trial, is also recruiting subjects to baseline the GATE differences between normals and Huntington subjects. So I think that... Um, People in proximity to University of Vermont um, could be on the lookout or go on their website, and you might find the opportunity to participate right there. But um, the pharmaceutical trial is actively recruiting, as I said, at 20 sites across the nation. So I'm confident that a lot of people are going to an opportunity to get, will get an opportunity to participate. Awesome. And is there anyone that? Um as far as who can participate, do they do they have to have gate issues already present, or is it a longevity? Are you watching over a long period of time, or how who is um, able included in, to be able to participate? Well, uh, I know you and your audience are much more intimately familiar with this than me, but uh, to me, as a clinician, the amazing thing—amazing well, may be the wrong word—but the troublesome, perhaps, thing to me is that certain diseases, and Huntington is a classic, aren't really classified as Huntington disease until the, let's call them stereotypic clinical signs and mm -hmm. symptoms are present. So once yeah. you actually have Huntington chorea and you actually have some of the other disturbances, including the gait disturbance, then you get labeled with the disease. That said, yeah. we all know that it's genetic and you've had it all your life. So sometime yeah. between yeah. when the disease is uh, manifest and when you had no symptoms, something happens in between. I'm very interested in that. And I'll come back to that uh, later. But um, the real issue is, are there treatments for the disease once you have these troublesome symptoms? And that's the focus of a lot of clinical trials, and this one in particular. We're not just looking at characterizing the gait, but then we are looking at the beneficial, we hope, effects uh, of the drug on the gait disturbance. Because... Mm -hmm. While these patients are already symptomatic, we know that some of the symptoms, chorea and gait disturbance in particular, are quite troublesome. And so those are the therapeutic targets. And that's the reason why we've chosen to measure them specifically. Okay. Yeah. And they seem to me like they would be the, the easiest to measure with um, with a device, right? Or Well, no, because you were saying it even takes vitals and everything. Um, well, yeah. um, the interesting thing is that when you say easy to measure, there's no question that the raw data that would come off sensors that you were wearing 
would be remarkably different from the same data coming off a person with active Huntington disease. So in that sense, yeah, it's easy. But to turn that set of raw data into an algorithm that reliably describes that gait disturbance, could grade it, could see changes for the better or for the worst or in response to therapy, or could be distinguished from the gait disturbance of other neurodegenerative diseases. When you get to that level of objectivity, precision, repeatability, that is quite a challenge in spite of the fact that right. you know anybody can see that this person walks differently from normal. Right. Yeah. Very interesting, and and I know you know it's it's it it is true that the families it's Korea and gait. I mean, well, every symptom of Huntington's disease is so very challenging to families. Um, interesting enough, the Korea and gait sometimes is more challenging to the families than it is the person with HD. So that's typically when you say, "Does it bother you?" They say no. Um, by wearing um, a device, you can actually see probably um, how much your loved one is impacted by these symptoms. Because a lot of well, I can tell you that we um, we're not going to do it in this trial, uh, but uh -huh. if you look at the combination of chorea and an unsteady gait, you're looking at an increased risk for falls. Of course, and there's no yep. question that falls are of concern in people with Huntington disease. So Absolutely. the hope for this kind of work, aside from the obvious, which is describing what it's like to really have the disease and be able to measure if it's getting better or worse or responding to therapy. But aside from that, the hope is to get information that's useful and actionable. So if we were to characterize gait and we were to grade um, chorea, we may be, as a next step, able to gauge a person's fall risk. That's the kind of thing that may or may not be really useful to patients and families. So if you said, you know what, it's time for us to move the bedroom down to the first floor because the fall risk has been assessed at X. That's the kind of thing you don't want to find out the hard way. And if we can do something that's easy, uh, passive, like wearing our patches, uh, to help people with those kinds of observations and decisions, you know, that's where we like to take the technology. Sure. Yeah. Quality of life, right? Holding on to that quality of life. Yes. Falls are obviously very horrible in HD and, you know, they usually cause a lot of pain to our loved ones when they happen. So yes, absolutely. If we could understand that better and help them, that would be, that would be um, really good for their quality of life in the home. Um, yeah. Or in, not even in the home, outside of the home as well, of course. Um yeah, and I, you know, the funny, the interesting thing is not funny. A lot of times, people with HD, they 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 have a lack of awareness, the anagnosia, right, of the symptoms present. And the only person that really has the the, the strong awareness is, of course, the caregivers. And um, so it would really help if they can, you know, if we can see this and monitor this. Like when we go out now, we really have to use the wheelchair. Um, you know, your loved one, maybe my husband fought me like crazy. He never wanted to be in that wheelchair. He hated it. He wanted to walk. He had horrible gait. Um, issues and horrible, horrible Korea. And um, so, you know, having this maybe as a tool for the caregiver as well, look, your gait is becoming more and more impaired. 
when we are out when we're out and there's a lot of people around and a lot of hazardous things, um, you know, we need to use a wheelchair. So it may actually help support the caregiver as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So, um, so it sounds like the best way for patients to find out about it is, is maybe is it like um, going to, you know, clinicaltrials.gov to look at where the sites are? Yes. Um, yes. You know what there's – uh-huh. Okay. That yeah. would be the case. Yeah. And um, um, I'm sure the U University of Vermont will have uh, some attention to it uh, in uh, the laboratory. And, um, sure. you know, if there are people who are interested in what we're doing with the trial, you know, I would be happy to uh, – respond to anyone who expressed a direct interest to me. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. And and is there is there an email or is there a way they should communicate or do you want them to communicate through me and I can communicate back to you? Yes. I could always through do that you as would well. probably Perfect. be because I'm sure they're comfortable yep. with you and they're part of the organization. But I'm happy to respond uh to you and the organization. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. And is there any final thoughts you have for us? Is there anything else that we should discuss well, before we wrap the show up? There's one thing that I find, um, you know, you, you mentioned early on in the, in the show that I've been a serial entrepreneur, and uh, that's true. But my thesis for entrepreneurship, especially in the life sciences, starts with an unmet need. Like, what problem hasn't been solved? You know, and then after that, you have to have uh, elegant technology, and after that, you have to have a viable business model so the company can, you know, provide the service, et cetera. But the real issue is, what is the unmet need? So in the process of educating myself about Huntington disease, I was shocked might be an exaggeration, but I was quite surprised to find that by the time subjects have fully manifest symptomatology and can be labeled as having active symptomatic Huntington disease, the brain volume has been reduced by 30%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't that and I incredible? thought to myself, yeah. my God, that's mm -hmm. a little late to the party, isn't it? And so yeah, I started looking yeah. into the literature about prodromal Huntington disease, mm -hmm. so-called pre-symptomatic Huntington disease. And just recently, yeah. I heard a presentation that talked about developmental Huntington disease. Because after all, yeah. people with the disease have the gene all their lives. And we yeah. know very little about the way it affects normal development during childhood. We know very little about what's actually going on when they're so-called pre-symptomatic. And even when they're prodromal, there are hints uh, at what might be going on or how things are developing, but there are no metrics there. But mm -hmm. all of this is very interesting and I think is an unmet need to characterize this aspect of the disease. But the punchline of this story is we live in the modern era. We're now talking about gene modification protein synthesis mm -hmm. modification, actual gene therapy. Well, yeah. we don't want to be giving somebody the cure after they lost 30% of their brain volume. We want yeah. to be doing it long before that. So part of the excitement yeah. for us at MC10 is not just charting the course of the classical symptoms, but reaching back in time 
and seeing in this prodromal period the earliest signs that could say, hey, this would be the right time if we were going to do something uh, for disease modification or actual cure, something along the line of gene therapy. We, we'd like to be able to help identify that way before there's been this loss of brain volume and this loss of function in activities of daily living. So that, that's the excitement uh, for us. Uh, not that we're not excited about the work we're doing right now. I mean, we certainly are. But I think that's the so-called sure. unmet need. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I remember my uh, mother-in-law telling me that my husband, you know, my husband had a very high CAG, 49. Um, you know, we, he died at 40, um, very young. But I remember, you know, we didn't see our first symptoms of Korea until he was around 24. And I remember my mother-in-law telling me, oh, when he was 16, I saw this. When he was 17, I saw this. Um, and her identifying so much, she saw these little signs um, when he was a very young teenager. Um, and so I do, I do think that it's so interesting when you start talking to the families, how they do see these subtle changes. And, of course, the prodromal pop population of our community has always been, I, I, I do think a lot of the really amazing professionals, um, uh, Mary Edmondson's one of the big ones, and, and, you know, so many people at the University of Iowa and, and all these places are really trying to talk about the prodromal population like you are because exactly what you said, with new treatments, we want the earliest intervention we can get without um, having any possible repercussion, repercussion on brain development. So, um, right. fantastic. Yeah, fantastic I think work. that's... Uh... That's where we'd like, you know, scientifically, we'd like to help. Uh, in fact, I had the chance to talk at HSG just a month ago, and uh, what I left them with was, let's write the natural digital history of this disease, because the sensors see and detect things that uh, even the most skilled clinicians simply can't see with the naked eye. So there's there's an opportunity uh, there to catch things very early and to give lots of options for the timing of potentially curative therapy. I wish I would have been, I was there, of course, I spoke on a couple panels, um, but it was so interesting you say that because I actually spoke on um, one panel, Life Cycle of HD, and I, I talked about prodromal um, at HSG this year. So um, I wish we missed each other's talks, it sounded like. So um, it's such a crazy uh <laughs> conference so there's a lot going on but um yes. yeah I'm, it's, yeah it's too bad I missed your, your talk but um maybe next year um so I think that's you know it's all fantastic thank you so much for looking at HD we are always very very thankful to anyone that that looks um at our disease and really really wants to find these unmet needs and help our community um especially like you were saying with this new age technology um there's going to be a lot that needs to support that so um we are, we are glad you are looking at Huntington's disease um, there at MC10. Um, I think we can wrap up the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Komen. My um, pleasure. I just have a couple, yes, I just have a couple announcements. Um, next week, uh, showtime is Christmas Day, so we will be doing a pre-recorded show. Um, it is Surviving the Holidays with Huntington's Disease. We know this time of year is so hard for families uh, for so many different reasons. Um, this is a pre-recorded show. You can find it on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Blog Talk in the archives from last year. Um, it will play Christmas Day, uh, but if you guys need any support in that, 
please go back and, uh, and listen to that, those shows because there's a lot of really good stuff um, in there to help support you guys through the holiday season um, as far as financials and, and also emotional um, and our loved ones not being able to do what they did uh, before. So um, there is support there. Um, me just losing my husband a couple months ago, um, I know that Chris, the holiday season sometimes is really hard on our families, but man, make those memories because um, I don't get to make the memories this year. Now I get to talk about the memories. So I'm so glad I have them and I'm so glad all the memories that I got to experience with my husband for so many years. So make sure, make those memories. And if your loved one is not with you any longer, then let's talk about those memories. Um, we all lived in extraordinary journeys with our loved ones. So um, keeping our memory alive during the holiday season is always is always very um, therapeutic and healthy for our families. Um, we are wrapping up. This is our last show of our ninth season of Health for HD Live. So this is very exciting for us. Um, we're closing off our ninth season. We started the show back in 11, uh, on 11-15 in 2010, and our very first guest was Lauren Holder talking about advocacy. Lauren Holder is now our amazing producer of Health for HD Live. Uh, she joined us a year and a half ago um, as a position uh, helping us run the show. So uh, that's interesting how that whole thing turned out. Uh, we are thankful to have Lauren and uh, thankful that she launched this show so long ago. Um, I think uh, the best, just a couple stats, we have 104 episodes available uh, for you guys in the last nine years that have been recorded, over 113 all-time listeners just on Blog Talk alone. This show is listened to all over the world. Um, we have to put up our map on how many places this show is listened to. So thank you to all of our listeners. We launched Spotify and iHeartRadio this year. So if you are on the road and you want to pull up iTunes, iHeartRadio, or Spotify, you will find us there. Um, and your archive shows are all available uh, whenever you guys need them or want to listen to them. Um, our holiday programs, we have wrapped it up. We were able to help $10,000 in holiday help this year. So thank you to all of our sponsors that helped make that possible. Um, we were able to bring a lot of relief to families this year. Um, our final program is we're helping Venezuela and Colombia through Factor H. Please, please look them up. They're an amazing organization helping South America. Uh, Health for HD wants to help them um, uh, with one, getting their mission out, which is extraordinary, and um, also help um, our community um, in South America because they are definitely um, having, I mean, I can't even uh, put into words what they're living with out there. So we need to bring as much support to our community there as possible. I think that is it. Everyone have such a, a, a loving holiday season with your loved ones. Enjoy it. Make memories. And, hey, we'll catch you guys back in 2020. Help for HD Live same time, Wednesdays, 1 o'clock live. Um, so look forward to our 10th season of a lot of amazing shows and hopefully some great, great news coming on new therapies and treatments for Huntington's. So until next year, everyone have a safe rest of 2019 and we'll see you in 2020.